Have you ever kept a helium balloon a day or two after it was given to you for some special occasion, a birthday, an anniversary, graduation, baby shower? Instead of pushing on the ceiling to go even higher, because it's lost some of the helium, the balloon kind of hovers right in the middle of the room, doesn't it? Somewhere between the ceiling and the floor. That, unfortunately, is a picture of how many people view their prayers. Far too often in my life, I've heard people say, I I don't feel like my prayers go any higher than the ceiling. Too often I've heard people say, I don't feel like my prayers even make it to the ceiling. And of course, by this, they're just expressing the feelings that we sometimes have that our prayers are futile, purposeless. Sometimes it feels like they don't make any difference or accomplish anything. Well, here's the good news this morning. Your prayers have a place. Your prayers have a purpose. And I hope you will be of good cheer this morning to discover once again that prayer is not futile, that your prayers go up before your Father in heaven. Is that good news? Is that good news? If that's good news to you, then you and I certainly ought to and must pray. That's what I want us to talk about this morning as we return once again to Revelation chapter 5. So I'm going to ask you if you have your Bibles to take those out now and turn to Revelation chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in the pew in front of you. When you found your place, would you please stand so that we might hear read together the word of the one and only true and living God. Revelation chapter 5, beginning in verse 6, this is the word of the Lord. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Let's pray. Father in heaven, bless your word to our hearts now, to our minds. Lord, may we understand your word. May we feel the truth of it. And may our lives be changed by the power of your spirit. Through it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much. You can be seated. I absolutely could not leave Revelation chapter 5 without looking at these golden bowls full of incense that John sees and describes for us in verse 8. 
And you know, perhaps you're here this morning and you don't really believe that your prayers have no place to go or that they don't go any further than the ceiling. But, but I know that many of us wonder at times if our prayers really do make a difference. We struggle from time to time with questions about prayer. What is the purpose of prayer? Who are the people who should pray? What's the place of my prayers? Where do they go? And so these are three of the questions that we want to consider this morning. The purpose of prayer, the people of prayer, and the place of our prayers. So look again, if you will, in verse 8. John writes, And when he, the Lamb, had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So let's consider first this morning the, the purpose of prayer. And in order to fully understand the purpose of prayer from this vision that John sees, In Revelation 5, we need to go back in the Old Testament to the book of Exodus. God has just delivered his people from the slavery of Egypt. And so now with Egypt behind them, with the Red Sea behind them, God begins to establish them as a people, as a worshiping people, as a praying people. So in Exodus 25 through 30, in those chapters, God details for Moses the tabernacle, the place of worship, what it's to look like, how it's to be built, all the decorations of it, the furnishings for it. Then in chapter 30, God gives Moses directions for the building of the altar of incense. God tells Moses it's to be made of acacia wood. 18 inches square, 36 inches high. It's to be overlaid with pure gold, and it's to be placed just outside the curtain that divides the rest of the tabernacle from the holy place, the holiest place, called the Holy of Holies. And God says, I will meet with you there. Every morning when Aaron maintains the lamps, He must burn fragrant incense on the altar. And each evening when he lights the lamps, he must again burn incense in the Lord's presence. This must be done from generation to generation. Did you catch those phrases? In the presence of the Lord. I will meet you there, here at the altar of incense. And then God gives Moses the recipe for making this very special incense. He tells Moses exactly the spices that he's to use and how those spices should be mixed and blended. And when the incense is made to God's specification, he tells Moses to put the incense on the altar in front of the Ark of the Covenant where I will meet with you in the tabernacle. There's that phrase again. You must treat this incense as most holy. Never use this formula to make this incense for yourselves. It's reserved for the Lord, and you must treat it as holy. God has set apart 
this incense that's to be burned on the altar. It's special. It's unique among all fragrances. It's holy because in Scripture, incense is equated with prayer. This holy connection between God and his people. David writes in Psalm 141, O Lord, I call upon you. Hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Like the burning incense on the altar. David's prayers go up before the Lord morning and evening. So the altar, the incense, God's repeated words, I will meet you there. And in the presence of the Lord, all of these work together to demonstrate that God has purposed prayer for his people. And so then it's little wonder that we come here to Revelation chapter 5 and that the elders hold bowls full of incense. The incense and the bowls are prayers and these prayers are welcome in God's presence. You and I pray because God has purposed that we should pray. And listen, the purpose is his. The purpose is not ours. What will he do when we meet with him? What will he do when we are in his presence? What of his good purposes will he reveal to us when we meet with him in prayer? These are the things for us to discover as we pray. And when we pray, the purpose is not to bend God's will to our wills. When we pray, the purpose is to bend our wills to God's will. For us to connect with and to know the heart of God. That's why prayers are never futile. Prayer is where we align our hearts with God's heart. And that always has meaning. That always has purpose. It never will fail to do so. So, let's pray. Now we move to this second question. Who are the people of prayer? Let's go back to the altar of incense for just a moment. This time not in the book of Exodus. We have to fast forward many centuries. Now we are in the time of the New Testament. And we see the priest, Zechariah, and he's standing by the altar of incense. Zechariah will become the father of John, the forerunner of Jesus. And he's been chosen by Lot that he should be the one to burn the incense on the altar. And while Zechariah was inside the temple burning the incense, Luke tells us this, and the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to Zechariah an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer 
has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. You get the picture. The people prayed. Zechariah prayed. God heard. God answered. All of God's people pray. Now look in verse 8. John sees the golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Now here's where we can get in just a little bit of trouble. This verse tells us that the saints are the people whose prayers are in the bowl. Now I don't know what you think when you hear the word saint. Whether you perhaps believe that the saints are some elite cadre of super spiritual Christians who because of all the good deeds they did in this lifetime were then posthumously conferred this title of saint and now they have some special privilege, some special standing in heaven, some special merit to distribute to us. That is not what a saint is. That is, of course, if we are allowing the word of God to define the term for us. But the reality is, we can't help it. This word saint has been tainted a little bit. So that in our mind, it suggests to us different levels of spirituality. And we can easily exclude ourselves from this vision because we are just not as spiritual as others. And our prayers don't count as much as someone else's prayers do. Please don't do that. Please don't exclude yourself. Please don't leave prayer for someone else to do. Listen, in Scripture, the word saint refers to the quality possessed by things and persons that could approach a divinity. Look, you and I can approach God, not because of who we are, but because of who Christ has made us to be. The word saint means being dedicated or consecrated to the service of God. If you are a believer in Christ, you're a saint because God has called you to himself. He's consecrated you. He's set you apart for himself. God has given you his spirit whereby he sanctifies you throughout the course of your life, making you more and more like Christ. Sometimes that process feels slow for us. We feel like we make little progress in holiness or Christ-likeness. At other times, we feel as if we are growing by leaps and by bounds. But in either case, it is happening. Transformation is occurring. You are becoming sanctified because you are a saint of God. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 1.7, To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. If you are a believer in Christ, you are a saint. And all saints must pray. In Scripture, the word saint is a term of parity, of equality, and not of hierarchy. Because we know this to be true. 
The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Do you believe that? Is that good news? Ground is level at the foot of the cross. So I say to you, saints of God, don't abdicate what God has purposed for you to do to someone else. No, you pray. You and I, we are the people of prayer. Finally this morning, let's move to this last question. And that is, what is the place of our prayers? Look again in verse 8. The 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Where are our prayers? Our prayers, yours and mine, are in these golden bowls. And what do the elders do with these golden bowls full of prayers? They lay them before the Lamb, right there, before the feet of Jesus. That's where our prayers are, right now, before Christ. And it's okay for you to picture that in some way. That's why God gave the vision to John, so that John could give the vision to us and so that we might be encouraged to pray. Our prayers come before the Father because of the merits of Christ. Jesus says to his disciples in the upper room at the Last Supper, Until now you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive, that your joy may be full. He said to them, And that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. Now listen to this. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from the Father. Our prayers go up before the Father because our Father so loved the world. He so loved us that he sent his Son. And through the Son, through Jesus, we have access to the Father who loves us and welcomes our prayers. Christ stands, even in this vision, as the Lamb who was slain. Christ has accomplished our redemption and gives us access to the throne of God. Is that good news? The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Timothy 2, For there is one God. And there is one mediator between God and man. The man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all. Christ has done it. And in this vision he stands before the throne of God. Powerfully so. The only one who is able to accomplish the will of God, the only thing that dried the tears of John, our prayers are before him. It's no wonder the elders fall down and worship him. No wonder that you and I should fall down and worship him. God keeps our prayers. Our prayers do not go nowhere. They go into this bowl. All the prayers that you've ever prayed. Listen, all the prayers that you will pray for the rest of your life, they're already there in this bowl. Is that not beautiful? We find it difficult to believe. Because for us, this vision is 2,000 years old. It's in the past. 
For the Apostle John, when he received a vision, everything he saw was yet to be in the future. But these are the terms that define our lives, past, present, and future. But those terms only have meaning for people who live their lives literally, who live from one unknown second to the last, next unknown second and minute and hour. But not so for God. Listen, can't comprehend it. God is outside of time. Time itself is a creation of God. And though we can't comprehend it, God's not affected by time. Somehow, it all occurs all at once for him. The great 17th century English Puritan Thomas Watson writes this. God's knowledge is instantaneous. Our knowledge is successive. One thing after another. God knows things past present, and to come at once. They are all before him in one entire prospect. Nothing is contingent for God. He's waiting for nothing to happen in order to know how to answer our prayers. With God, there is no foreknowledge in that before and after, and yet to be, are markers of time. And God is beyond time. All our prayers are already there. We can't understand it. So the only response we can make is, like the elders, to fall down and worship. Because it's true. Our prayers are in this bowl. And the reality of that ought to change our prayer lives. Maybe with this picture in our minds, we'll be less petty or petulant with our prayers and try to offer ones more worthy of the Lord. Not because our prayers are eloquent. No. Even with stumbling words, stammering lips, incomplete thoughts, a complete lostness for what we ought to pray, we still come to the Lord. I'm talking about our attitude in prayer. We come with a heart seeking to connect with the heart of God and the will of God through prayer. A.W. Pink wrote a book entitled Gleanings from Paul. The Prayers of the Apostle Paul. And in this book, he traces every prayer that Paul made that are recorded in all of Paul's letters. And it's a long book. Contains 33 chapters, and each chapter highlights a prayer that Paul made. The prayers that are in this bowl, along with our prayers and and all the other saints and apostles. I want to read you just some of the headings of this book. As you and I think about what kinds of prayer ought we to pray that will end up in this bowl. The Apostle Paul prays for peace, a prayer for insight, a prayer for weaker brothers, 
prayer and affliction, prayer of gratitude, prayer of faith and knowledge, prayer for spiritual apprehension, prayer for appreciation of Christ's triumph, prayer of adoration, prayer for inner strength, prayer for Christ-centeredness, prayer for comprehension of God's love, prayer for fruits of righteousness, prayer for a worthy walk, prayer for long-suffering, prayer for joy and thankfulness, prayer for brotherly love, prayer for preserving grace and prayer for love toward God. These are Paul's prayers that are in the bowl. It's the kind of prayers that we would want to pray that are also in the bowls. You know, I cannot help but think about my mother uh, in these verses and the great love she had for her three boys. She demonstrated this love by keeping everything. I mean everything we ever did. And when my brothers and I go up to clean out her house and empty it, here's what we're going to find. Drawers stuffed full of report cards, certificates, awards, drawings, newspaper clippings. You, you get the point, don't you? Yeah, that, that's the kind of mom I had. And she kept all of them because she loved us so deeply. And that's just a, a small picture of the love that God our Father has for us. He keeps our prayers He values what you say to him, what you bring before him. And if I might digress for just a moment, and it's a very brief moment. May I digress? Please say yes. David writes this in Psalm 56. Lord, you have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. You know, God also keeps our tears. Nothing we suffer is discarded by the tender heart of our loving Heavenly Father. He sees. He knows all of our sufferings. He remembers our tears have meaning to Him. They don't simply evaporate. They go somewhere. Our tears go into His bottle. And someday we're going to make an exchange, a bottle of tears for the joy of his presence. And for those who question the love of God, is it not remarkable that our sins, our sins, those grave offenses against God, the pettiness, The petulance with which we grieve his holiness. Listen, our sins he remembers no more. He does not collect our sins in order to take them out and hurl them against us at some point. Though he could do that and though he would be justified to do so. No, scripture says our sins he scatters 
as far as the east is from the west. He remembers them no more. Scripture says he casts all our sins into the depth of the sea. How could we not be completely awestruck by the beauty of the gospel? He forgets and scatters and buries our sins and remembers them no more. And he collects our tears and he collects our prayers. Our tears go in a bottle. Our prayers go in a bowl because of the love the Father has for us. Come on. Pray, people. God has purposed that you should. Never believe that your prayers are futile. Never believe they have no purpose. God has a place for your prayers. He keeps them right before his throne. Will you? Will you then be people who pray? Father in heaven, we ask that we would be such. Father, we are ashamed to call ourselves saints because we know our hearts, we know our lives, we know what we think, we know how we live. And yet, Lord, you've made us to be such because of the finished work of Christ. You put your spirit in us, you sanctify us, you make us your people, you call us your saints, and you love to hear the prayers of your people. You keep them. You collect them. Father, I pray that this picture, these golden bowls, filled with the prayers of your people, would encourage us to be people of prayer. And Father, I pray that we would not take prayer lightly or treat it flippantly. And no way, Lord, should we hesitate to pour out our hearts before you. You already know our thoughts. You know our hearts. You know what's in there. But, Father, change our purpose in prayer. That it might be to connect with you in holy moments, just as the incense was so holy. Thank you that our prayers waft up to you. Thank you that you hear You answer according to your goodwill and your good purpose for us. We thank you for prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.